Hans Brunix is the executive director of the European Environment Agency. He is a political scientist and international relations scholar, specializing in global environmental governance, climate change, and sustainable development. Previous to his work at EEA, he was head of the Hever Research Institute and of the Political Science Department at KU Leuven. Senior member of the interdisciplinary Leuven Center for Global Governance Studies, and promoter coordinator of the Flemish Policy Research Center on Transitions for Sustainable Development. Hans Lunings, welcome to the One Planet Podcast. Happy to be here, of course. So tell us a little bit about the European Environment Agency, its mission and history, and your path to becoming executive director. Well, the agency's origins stem from the late 1980s, when Europe had developed quite a bit of environmental legislation, and a number of the countries had, of course, uh, national monitoring mechanisms for the state of the environment and for pollution. But there was no unified European system to know what the state of the European environment was and and how all of these things compared between countries. And so the European institutions decided to start with an agency, the European Environment Agency, to bring together the monitored data, analyze it, quality check it, quality control it, and make sure that it was, you know, at the service of the European policymakers. To follow up what was happening in the member states, and so we started operations in 1994 in Copenhagen, and、uh, since then we grew to about 230 staff members in Copenhagen. But what is unique about the agency is that we work with the specialists and the organizations in all our member countries,、uh, and so we bring together a network of several thousand professionals. On environment and climate and sustainability, in support of the European、uh, environment and climate policies, and in essence, we do three things. We work with data.、Uh, all all of these uh, uh, data flows on air quality, water quality, biodiversity, they end up in the agency, and we make sure that this is quality data that we can compare it and that we analyze how countries are doing against European policies. The second thing we do is we connect the dots. We we look at, for example, how、uh, patterns of mobility have an impact on air quality and how that has an impact on human health, because that's how you connect economic drivers of environmental pressures to, for example, social issues like our health. And the third thing we do is we also work intensely with the, the research and scientific community. So we make sure that new insights, new knowledge,、uh, lands in the policy support for the Commission, for the Parliament, but also for the member states. So that that's our core、uh, our core work, and that's also what motivated me to come to the agency because I was a, an academic, a professor in Belgium at environment and climate issues, and I was leading research on policy、uh, on those domains. And so now working at the European level in the place that brings knowledge to policymakers is just fantastic. It's, it's unbelievable that I 
I can do this. It's the best job on the planet uh, in what motivates me, and that is bringing knowledge to policymakers. Yes, I think what's overwhelming for people is that they see a connection sometimes with their behaviors, maybe if they're not even an academic or researchers, but they're just not sure how, how they can connect with what is happening in the world. Yeah, well, I think one of the essential elements that I've always uh, put in my own research and my thinking about the environment is that it's not something that is far away from us. In fact, it stems from our behavior, from the choices that we make. It stems from production, from consumption. And so when you look at nature, when you look at uh, environmental uh, issues, water quality, air quality, uh, you are in essence talking about how we produce and how we consume and how the consequences of that are distributed across countries, poor countries versus rich countries, uh, within countries. And, and so for me, it is an essential part of society. It's not outside of society. And I think people studying the environment have not always been very good at framing this as a societal issue, as, as something that touches us as citizens, as consumers, as people that work in a place, as people that make choices. So when you were teaching as well, and, and I imagine you've also, you know, you were at Leuven, I think you were at University of Colorado, and you've seen other ways that uh, we're being educated about the environment and how to take action then with that. What are some innovative ways of teaching or what kind of practical implementation would you always want to include? Well, again, the starting point for me is also that uh, if you speak about environment or climate, uh, almost by definition, you need to bring in the multiple facets. Yeah? And teaching from a, a policy perspective, that is obvious because there's usually an economic angle to it. There is usually a distribution or social angle to it. There is a health angle to it. You have to make choices in research and development. I mean, that's all part of policies. So having that interdisciplinarity as an, an, a starting point is important. And the main course I was teaching in Leuven was global environmental politics. And it was an elective course in about a dozen faculties or departments. So we had a broad variety of backgrounds in the auditorium, which was very stimulating. And, and you could see students with various backgrounds making connections that they had not seen before. Yeah? So that's one point. The second point for me is that I always uh, have approached these things as systemic issues. Yeah? So looking at the connections between things, not just studying air quality and how we deal with it, but what are the sources of that? What is the impact on the environment? How is this linked to choices that uh, we have made in our fiscal system? How is this linked to choices that we've made in urban planning and spatial planning? Because all of those things are connected. So this systemic approach, which in the end brings you to studying the energy system, the food system, the mobility system yeah, or the, the urban system that has always been uh, a driver as well and then a final part for me is that this is also about choices and values yeah? so of course i'm a strong proponent of the solid scientific method 
you, you, if, if it's not solid, it doesn't belong in science. Yeah? That doesn't mean there cannot be doubt or uncertainty. In fact, that is driving science, the continuous questioning. But at the same time, I think engagement, commitment, understanding that this is part of challenges that we face as society and that, that values are part of the choices that we will have to make. More equality is good for the environment by and large. So we need to have clear statements there. If you are dealing with uh, regimes that are corrupt in their political dealings, well, then that is part of what needs to be on the table. If we need to talk about personal choices and that have an impact on collective outcomes, so the responsibility for the collective, those are values. And I am a strong believer that in that sense, science is also not value-free. And we need to be explicit about what we stand for. And so those, those things have been driving a bit my research and also my teaching. Yes. And about uh, the European Green New Deal, just tell us how those values, how they're interacting with uh, values of green deals uh, elsewhere in the world. First of all, I, I think the, the, the European Green Deal is a systemic response. So when I talked about understanding systems more than ever before. It talks about the food system in its farm-to-fork strategy, for example, or it it recognizes the energy system and the need for a systemic transition there. So that is embedded in the European Green Deal. So that resonates extremely well with uh, what the European Environment Agency has been focusing on, but also with my own thinking. The other part is that it's very much a societally embedded approach, which again, as I said, for me is important. It is, in essence, you could say that European policy framings, the big programs that that we operate under are always about the economy and society or growth and jobs, if you want to. But what the commission this time has said is, of course, it's about a good society and and, and an an economy that performs and delivers well-being to people, but in the 21st century, there are new boundary conditions. They are called biodiversity, climate, they're called resource use. And so taking that as a a sort of framing for a societal debate about our future, I think is is absolutely in line with uh, how I look at these issues and what the agency has been uh, uh, producing and and writing about and analyzing for the last uh, years. In practical examples, we need to, and we are transforming our cities. You live in a city, I live in a city. What does that mean? What are some of the things that you are presently implementing? Well, the agency is not the implementer. But if you look around us, it is clear that in a number of places in Europe, and you talked about cities, that decisions have been made to really become the city that that is fit for the 21st century. And if you just look at the Green Capital Award in Europe and the finalists of that award, all of these cities have a strong vision on climate change and the role that they can play as a city in climate change, often with goals and priorities that that are far uh, higher than their national priorities. They all have a vision on mobility much more sustainable urban mobility. And for example, in some cities that has led to Oslo, we will not allow 
any more combustion engine cars in the city by 2025 or they, they make large parts of the city completely car free almost. So they have a vision on that. They also have a vision on how to work with their citizen organizations. All of these green capitals really work with civil society organizations. So also that is part of a vision of sustainability, engaging with the people who live in that urban environment, who will benefit from better air quality, who will benefit from more green places in the city, who will benefit from clean water that plays a role in the quality of life, but also in how you deal with global warming in the city. So that type of uh, connection is there and they all have a, a link with the local knowledge institution. Almost all of these cities have a university and there's a strong connection there. So it's science-based, it's knowledge-based. They bring in the, the local creativity of scientists and knowledge players. So those are really good practices, I think, that we can build on in an urban environment and that we can learn from and set standards. And this is partially happening in things like the Covenant of Mayors, you know, where mayors commit to uh, climate mitigation and adaptation measures and they learn. Uh, so that's the type of good examples that I would refer to. And in terms of coronavirus, and I'm not sure, I mean, some of the findings from your the European Environment State and Outlook 2020, I, I'm, sure, I'm sure some of those findings were not able to take everything into account with the coronavirus or what are well, your... In the meantime, we have, of course, followed up on uh, what the coronavirus means for environment and climate. So from March onwards, we looked at the monitored data on air quality and for some pollutants, primarily those linked to mobility in some uh, cities, urban environments, we saw drops of 50, 60, up to 70% of some pollutants and NOx. We also saw a drop in other pollutants uh, that, that are more associated with the energy system, for example. So that's good, but we, we cannot be naive and be joyful about the fact that closing down society is the solution to dealing with air quality. Yeah? So rather than looking at that as the solution, we should ask ourselves the question, what can we learn from this? And well, what we can learn from this is that if you make choices on mobility, you see outcomes that if you make choices on certain activities, you will see biodiversity come back also in an urban environment, like the, the water quality in, in Venice, for example. So the, the questions of what can we learn from this that would be useful to conduct a type of policies that are not driven by locking down our societies, but by understanding the mechanisms that can lead to better outcomes. I think we can learn from that. Of course, we also asked uh, the question about what is the link between the loss of biodiversity and the chance that we are dealing with these pandemics. And we reached out to scientists, but also to other uh, agencies that work on health, for example, to the UN level. And it's clear that parts of our food system, parts of how we have been destroying uh, forests, how we have been marginalizing people along the way that now are resorting to food habits that are not sustainable, that all of that has a link with the probability that pandemics arise, that we are dealing with viruses, 
And we need to be very careful because we have created conditions for this type of situation to appear more and more. And there's also scientific evidence for that. The intervals with which we are dealing with this type of pandemics or epidemics is shortening. And it follows, there is a high correlation with biodiversity loss. So we have to be very careful. Those are the types of things that we have focused on during the pandemic. What we are also working on is, of course, the the economic measures now to grow out of the crisis, uh, the, the stimulus packages, and how they are aligned with the European Green Deal, with zero pollution, with biodiversity targets, with climate targets, because that is the statement that is made. Huh? So how do we know that this is the case? Can we monitor this? Can we analyze this? So we also have a connection uh, there. Yes, and I don't mean, because it's so immense. I mean, your report and you just have the environment state and outlook, and you cover so many areas. I don't know if we could discuss all of them from, yes, we discuss air pollution and waste and resources, in industrial pollution. What are, you also discuss in this that people are, it's about you're addressing flawed systems, that we are going forward with our solution finding systems that are old and they need to be adapted. Mm-hmm. So what are some of the, the feedback that you're getting from people that they're finding something useful in the knowledge that you're gathering and they're able to adapt their systems? Well, I think by now more and more, people understand that it's at the systemic level that we have to come with the solutions. Yeah? And when you were working along those lines, eh, sustainability transitions, systemic transitions, when you were using that language 20 years ago, 30 years ago, and scientists were using that language or, or closer to policy 10 years ago, there was quite a bit of pushback from those who were still believing that by tweaking the current technologies, making them a bit more efficient, staying within the current paradigm, we could solve the the main problems that we were facing. By now, that is no longer the case. So I think there is a very receptive audience and broad understanding that improving the combustion engine is not the key to a sustainable mobility system. A sustainable mobility system means much more than changing or tweaking an engine. We understand that making the energy system sustainable is absolutely critical and cannot be done by tweaking here and there a bit on the the current technology. So there is a receptive audience. What is increasingly clear is also that when we say we need a new system, and this is now language that is used by the top of the commission or by prime ministers, the system is broke, we need a new system. We are also talking about the role of finance and capital. Europe is coming with a sustainable finance uh, initiative that that is absolutely critical. We cannot change the fundamentals of the system without going to some of the fundamental pieces. And investments in capital is part of that. So the sustainable finance initiative is critical. Linking it to fiscal debates, because fiscal systems stimulate behavior or they don't they have distributional effects and they drive and create public investments in a certain direction so if you think of the whole idea of greening fiscal systems and the flip side of that getting rid 
of unsustainable subsidy systems, for example, yeah, environmentally harmful subsidies, as it is called, those things are now part of the debate. And I think that is really a step forward. Now we need to speed this up and scale this up. Because scientists are clearly saying we are in a pivotal decade. Yes, we can still deal with climate change, but it needs to happen now. Yes, we can still mitigate biodiversity loss and the loss of species and the sixth great extinction, but it needs to happen now. And the same is true for our resource use. So we are really in a pivotal decade. It needs to happen now, which means that we need to speed up and scale up the solutions that are there and that we know can work. That would be the, the, the critical sort of approach to this more systemic type of thinking. I'm Angela He, Digital Humanities and Environmental Science Podcaster of the Creative Process and One Planet. The world is drowning in information, but starved for wisdom and practical path to sustainability. That's why it's refreshing to learn from Dr. Hans Brunix, who shows us ways to change our behavior if we want to achieve a better future. He emphasizes that environmental issues are part of our everyday lives and not some distant academic notion. We need to recognize the fact that the environment responds to every choice we make and every action we take, even though some choices might seem more social financial or political than environmental. We've all seen the improvements to air quality during the coronavirus lockdowns. However, as he observes, closing down society should not be considered as the long-term solution to our air pollution issues, even though the lockdown policy in many cities have shown obvious benefits to the environment. He states that instead, We should look at this event as an example of how the environment reacts to human activities, and we ought to use it as a reference for future policymaking. We should also take the sustainable view when we consider how our activities during the pandemic have simultaneously impacted the environment. As many people are staying at home, usage and disposal of delivery containers, plastic packaging, and various medical supplies have drastically risen, and we are already seeing negative environmental responses to these human activities. That does not mean, however, that we are going to prevent people from staying at home to reduce waste, but learn from the phenomenon and make better decisions from now on. As someone who was born and grew up in the city, my early impressions of the world were formed by city life. I actually never saw a clear starry sky until I was six years old. There were always skyscrapers blocking my vision when I looked up to the sky. But I remember when I was six, I traveled with my family to the countryside, and I was able to see for the first time the whole of the night sky reaching all the way to the mountains in the horizon. The countless stars and the way they shine took my breath away. I pressed my face to the backseat window, staring at the black space above, fascinated by the beauty of the galaxy. I was too young to contemplate my place in the vastness of the universe, but I was thrilled by the power and beauty of nature, and I could never forget the wonder I felt. 
I wish everyone could have a moment like this to appreciate the beauty of this world. Sadly, if I return to the same spot today, it's hard to see the starry sky now because of worsening air quality and light pollution coming from towns nearby. And how would you suggest to those who may not be directly involved in studying climate change, or might not be able to add their expertise, or maybe might not have be able to spare so much time to be committed to green groups, ways that we may all be involved that can work within our lifestyles? Well, first of all, the idea of mainstreaming、eh, is very strong. Climate mainstreaming, biodiversity mainstreaming, which means whether you work. In a company that that is not a you know green company, it will have impact on the functioning of the company. Yeah, if you build a house, you're not immediately part of the green movement. Everybody needs a house. Yeah, we all need a place to live. But the standards of doing this very normal thing, you know, working with your house, being mobile, traveling, will have to be permeated. By the fact that we are dealing with global challenges that frame these types of economic, technological, consumptive、uh, choices, whether you want it or not, yeah, I think one of the elements that we have lost a bit over time is our connection and understanding to this. I mean, how many people still feel connected to biodiversity ecosystems? You know, those are foreign words.、Huh? If if you want to talk about nature, even that, many people are rather far removed from that reality. Yeah, it's part of educational systems, primarily in primary and secondary school. It magically disappears for the most part in、uh, higher education. I have no idea why, because those are key challenges for all of us for the next decades. But there is very little experiential knowledge. So I've been. Thinking, but this is outside of the box of what the European Environment Agency should be doing. But exposing people more to the challenge, in but also in a positive way, nature, the big outdoors, even local nature, can be of high value to establish that sort of understanding that we are part of it. It's not something that is external to our existence. To the contrary. And that is one of the things that has motivated me from the start. I mean, I've always had this urge to explore big spaces and the outdoors and mountains, and you know. You from, sail as well. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But it it, it started long before I I set one foot on a sailing boat. You know, I grew up in Belgium, densely populated. I I cannot say that I was exposed to much of the outdoors, but I had an interest in it, and. When I moved to the U.S. the first time when I was 18, I lived in Orange County, south of L.A. Not exactly the big nature place, but close to nature. And I was lucky enough to hook up to people who loved going into the desert and and into the mountains. And so for me that was formidable. And then when I was a student and I did interrailing in Europe, a month free train use. A lot of the people of my age, they went to the south.、Eh? We want to go to Spain or Portugal or France or Greece, the beach and warm weather and blah blah blah. That's all fine, but I I had no interest in that. I took a map of Europe, 
I looked uh, to Scandinavia and I said, that's where I want to go. So the first two times I did interrail, I went to Finland and Sweden and Norway and I did hiking in the mountains above the Arctic Circle and I, I just wanted to be outside and outdoors. And also in mountains in Europe, that was for me where my interest was and being, and it's still sort of part of who I am. I love being outside. I love the outdoors. And then through my wife, I discovered sailing and sea sailing some decades ago. And it's the same thing when you're on the sea, the forces of nature and some of the silence there is just formidable. So it's lovely. And those who think that the environment is external to us and as, as human beings, we have moved on and, and we, we are not so dependent on it anymore. Well, I invite you to, to sail through the night when you don't see anything else and you're exposed to only the sound of the waves and the wind and, and the vastness of it and the power of it. it it's a deep experience. And, and I think if more people would still understand that connection and be exposed at some level, it doesn't need to be sea sailing because that's unrealistic, but that we would maybe have a better foundation for people, more motivation to work on environment and climate issues. Yes, and I think it's very beautiful. We have to be reminded of the beauty and wonder of nature in order yeah. to safeguard it. I mean, it is so beautiful. And I, I do want to get to, like in your lifetime, the things that maybe we have lost or approaching losing that other generations won't have. But I think that your point about just inviting having it as part of our education system that school children whether they're born in cities or they don't have that access you know, some people never see the sea you know they just or yeah. they it's so long till they see the sea <laughs> they're already adults or they don't know what it is to cl climb the mountain to breathe that air and those vistas but it also helps commit us each to be stewards of this planet because then through that exposure they may find it's like this is the, another thing that people experience this the stasis the immobility like what part of the environment am i going to focus on there everything is but if they can find something that they fall in love with and they can focus and this is the thing and it doesn't have to be you need to go to the mountains or the sea or i mean even if you live in a more urban environment or or in places like like belgium densely populated where you could say we don't have fast spaces that like in Scandinavia or the US or that we would call, you know, wilderness or nature, but small local places where you can experience the beauty, the seasons, the impact on also your mental health, a space where you can be physically active and active can be walking, going for a walk. And I think that is one of the things that people have rediscovered with uh, Corona. I mean, we weren't able to travel so much, but there's, a, there's quite a bit of evidence now that people have been walking and cycling more in, in their immediate environment and discovering places that they may have never known were there or they never saw value in them. Yeah, it's just a piece of little land that is there or a little park. Or, so that is also important. Yeah? Or if you have a little garden, it doesn't need to be a big garden because uh, yeah, we cannot all live and, and we should not all live in, you know, freestanding houses with a big piece of land around it. That is just not sustainable. But even in a little garden, you can have some connection with 
what is out there. So that type of thing motivates people and also has always motivated uh, me. Yeah. Yes, and it makes us appreciate the the life cycle of the plant, of an animal. And I think to learn from animals when they have an environment to grow and thrive, their sense of contentment. I think we're often moving too fast and we have to think about, as you say, there's other ways we can connect with ourselves and not always with the whole world at once. And there's also some, I mean, there's good scientific understanding also of what we can indeed learn or how we can be inspired to find solutions from the, the the logic of nature and ecosystems think of biomimicry where we mimic what we see in the environment to then transfer the logic of it to to our solutions technology for example or where we understand the logic of ecosystem services and the benefits we get from the environment. And if you understand that better, you are more inclined to protect and to defend nature. So I think there's quite a bit indeed that we need to understand. And, and that can be very, I mean, rational and fact-based. Yeah. It, it's more, more than that emotional connection, which I think has value in and of itself. There is also a, the, the, the sort of rational understanding of why certain parts of ecosystems have been so successful for millions, if not hundreds of millions of years, and, and how these parts of nature function and, and what we can learn from them. I'd love to go more specifically into that because, yes, our, sometimes our industrial models, or as you say, they're going out. And what were like some specific examples of why you, nature had this figured out and how do we now scale that up to what we're doing? Yeah, well, if, if you look at some animals that live in massive colonies, going from bees to ants or there are people who look at the architecture of these dwellings. There are people who look at the social organization of it. There are quite a number of people who try to understand how in nature hardly anything is wasted. Waste hardly exists because there is this sort of cycle where everything is used by some part of the ecosystem. Also the idea of uh, equilibrium when are systems in balance and when are they not yeah the, the whole logic of uh, small interventions with large consequences right? in an ecosystem in biodiversity is a bit like this uh, this game like jenga uh, with all these little wooden pieces we have operated and maybe still operate under the assumption that yeah you can take away one species yeah power still stands yeah and then another species and another species but from Jenga we know that that then you do exactly the same thing you take away the same thing one piece yet it collapses yeah so the understanding that this accumulation of taking away parts of a system that has a certain logic can lead to collapse those are the things that that are important to understand and where we can learn from nature. And I, I don't say that in a in a sort of yeah naive way where it's interspecies learning. Yeah? 
look at a dog and what we can learn from the dog or look at ants and what we can learn from ants. It's more an understanding of the system of nature and, and the logic of nature. So in that sense, you could say, yeah, but that still remains rather anthropocentric. And maybe it is. I say it's an intellectual exercise that we can use to find solutions, building materials, yeah? glues. Uh, in nature, there is a lot of work with glue. A lot of animals produce a substance that has glue-like characteristics, and that is perfectly natural. Whereas a lot of the glues that we've used as human beings are not so natural. Yeah? They tend to be rather driven by new molecules in chemistry, that are not necessarily good for the environment or for human health. So can we transfer some of this nature-based uh, solution where we need glue to, to human society? And this is a tiny example. There are a number of examples like that. On a personal level, because I'm always asked, and I think everyone who cares about this will ask, I hope so, you know, what they can do. I feel my personal carbon footprint except I'm doing a lot less uh, plane travel. But when I'm doing plane travel, that offsets it. My personal carbon footprint, I believe, is low, but I'm not sure because of energy consumption, certain decisions. I'm not sure the best way to track it. There's, I haven't found, for me, but you can point us to the best way to accurately track that. Well, there are a couple of dozen, at least, mm -hmm. websites and organizations that have instruments to track your carbon footprint or even your ecological footprint. Yes. They include water and, and use of resources and all of that. Is there a sort of perfection in it? No, because a lot of the choices that we make uh, are not just personal choices. I mean, we are always part of a system. And how far do you go? Where does the impact of your choice but what, what is useful, I think, is if, if you can find one that is fit for purpose for the type of life that you lead and the type of decisions that you can make, then you can at least track your own choices over time. I'm filling it in today. Oh, I'm surprised that food plays such a big role. And I'm sure for many people that would be the case. Now let's try to work on that, change some food habits, do it again, and see what the impact is. So I look at it more as a sort of uh, tracking over time and a bit of a comparative instrument. But I wouldn't say that there is one tool that, that, that is uh, perfect. Huh? But there is a choice. There are several dozen, and many of them are national or local as well. I know that in Belgium there are a couple of organizations that do it. They've been doing it for some time. They have good expertise in it. People use it. And it, for me, it's a tool to, to track, yeah, but also to open a discussion with others. Let's fill this in and see where the emphasis is in your profile versus my profile. You know, what does it mean about our choices? Have you thought about that? So it opens up a space to discuss also. And what are some exciting developments that are interesting ones that we might not be aware of in terms of, because I think this is one that we feel that with our purchasing power, we can try to avoid packaging wastes, but it's difficult. So you may, you are aware of different developments. Yeah. Well, I, I think one of the more exciting things that I see, and, and that is very close to home, 
is that people are more and more conscious of the food choices they make. And there is a whole, uh, a whole sort of understanding that you can prepare food, buy food. That is very different from what many of us were raised with. And that can be meat consumption. It can be thinking more about local food. It can be thinking about short chains uh, that are value chains that are in there. Much more attention for the link with our health. Uh? for good reason. By now, uh, there are more people that are obese than people that are undernourished. Yeah? When I was a kid, the big problem with food was always malnourishment yeah? or undernourishment, uh, world hunger. By now, it's more world obesity, one could say. So the thinking, the innovation, the personal choices, also the debate about food choices, that for me is really thrilling. And it's important because the food system is a big pressure on environment and on climate. The other thing is that in some countries, at least, there is a very good debate going on about future life uh, choices when it comes to the houses, the buildings that we live in. Not only zero carbon, but also where are they located? Impact on mobility patterns. What about more collective services? District heating, but also shared services to people living in a place, shared cars, shared tools, shared, you know, that, that sort of stuff. And what is the size? There is quite a bit of discussion about downsizing also, but making it more efficient space use. So that I also find very motivating because it opens up all sorts of debates about uh, technology, but also personal choices. And of course, with climate change, the whole discussion about flying uh, is also being had. So what, what I find interesting is that new debates have opened up and young people are very much part of those debates. Yeah, I, I, I notice it on my own children and the children of friends that food, for example, is something that they want to discuss. I never discussed food with my parents. I mean, my mom was prepared fantastic food and we loved it. And we were saying, could you make this or could you make that? And she would do that. And we would be, you know, there was never a discussion about meat or about seasonal food. That is now part of how youngsters relate to their parents when it comes to food in many places. Now that's, I, I think that is very stimulating as a parent as well. And so it's interesting, uh, so with your own children, what, were, what do you make sure that they know in terms of what your, your own activities, but in terms of their responsibility to the environment? I mean, what was it, was it very important for you to instill in them? Well, I, I think from early on, being conscious of the fact that these issues are out there, we made choices to expose them to the outdoors and to nature. And that has been very important. And they know what I do, of course, and, and that's fine. And it's part of our discussion at home. But I'm, I'm not like the, the teacher, right? L let me teach you about this and the, the finger out there like the old school teacher eh, from decades ago. Because I don't think that is a stimulating way for them to deal with it. Of course, they grow up in an environment where these choices matter. Yeah? In food, in traveling, in mobility, in, in how we have invested in our house with ecological choices and all of that. So to that extent, yes. And then it becomes natural. If it becomes a sort of point where they need to 
to push back because we are the parents and we're telling them you should do this and you have to do that, then it becomes maybe a point of tension rather than part of growing up in a conscious way uh, around these things. Well, I can see that definitely with the agency, it's one of you're providing the information. We must, it's our choice, it's our life, it's our planet, and that we, we all need to be collaborating on it. I think it's a very important message because I had wondered, do we come to a point where authoritarian solutions are required? And I, I, don't, I don't hope for it, but... No, I, absolutely not. By training a political scientist, I'm a deep believer in the values of democracy, human rights, and sort of the, the, the system where, where civil society and people play a key role in the discussions about society and also assuming responsibility, whether it's through labor unions or youth organizations or, you know. So no, for me, authoritarianism is not a solution, not at all. Yeah? And I know there is some discussion about that, primarily when people refer to the Chinese context, yeah, where they say, look, when China decides something, immediately it happens and it's always large scale. And yes and no. Yeah? First of all, no. Being an environmental activist in China is not exactly uh, a profession that is without risk. Yeah? Or a journalist that focuses on these things. And for me, that is unacceptable. I, I believe in, in these uh, human rights and, and liberal values when it comes to free speech and stuff. Secondly, we shouldn't, we shouldn't uh, be naive. China is also a complex country with a massive bureaucracy, with large differences between the regions in China, and with a massive problem of environmental pollution built up over decades. So they are now also dealing with that legacy and also with, uh, with people that are questioning this. I mean, the legitimacy of, of the leadership also depends on how they will be dealing with the air quality in cities where you weren't capable of watching or seeing one kilometer far or where people were worried about chemical pollution in their food. Uh, think of the milk scandal and the baby food scandals. Water quality was you know, absolutely atrocious. So dealing with that, yes, but thinking that authoritarianism is the solution, no, not at all. Not at all. Yeah? So that is not the solution. I think one key solution at the level of society is more equality. More equal societies bring a lot of advantages. There is a ton of research on that. Yeah? And I think... Uh, that is a critical component to building a sustainable society. We cannot pretend that the current distribution of wealth on this planet between countries and within countries is a fertile ground for long-term sustainability. It isn't. It isn't. The concentration of financial power over the last three, four decades in a smaller group of people, relatively speaking, the disenfranchised bottom two, three deciles in a lot of countries, that is not a fertile ground for long-term sustainability. So we need to focus on that more than thinking that if we would have uh, been a volunteer green dictator, that we would be out of the woods. We're, we will not be out of the woods. Well, I, I 
appreciate the very firmness of that message. We have to take this very seriously. And I want to, and everyone who can get involved in whatever way they can get involved on a daily level, our choices are affecting the climate, our environment, every aspect of society. So I want to thank you, Hans Brunnix and the European Environment Agency. I suggest everyone go visit their website, which is a wealth of information, read their reports and see how you can get involved. Thank you for what you do to safeguard our future, show us pathways to sustainability so that collectively we can create a better tomorrow. Thank you for adding your voice to the One Planet podcast. It was my uh, pleasure. One Planet podcast is produced by The Creative Process. This interview was conducted by Mia Funk with the participation of collaborating universities and students. Associate Interviews producer on this podcast was Angela He. Theme music is written and performed by Juan Sanchez. We hope you have enjoyed this program. If you would like to get involved in One Planet podcast and be a part of the climate change solution, just drop us a line at team at oneplanetpodcast.org. Thank you for listening.